This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. NAFTA and uh, the NAFTA negotiations. As we know, round one is already wrapped up. And on Labor Day weekend, of course, they'll begin round two. Uh, what about the comments of uh, Donald Trump the other night, though, at his uh, rally in Phoenix, Arizona, when uh, he uh, raised a few eyebrows in uh, Canada and in Mexico when he made this comment? Personally, I don't think we can make a deal because we have been so badly taken advantage of. They have made such great deals, both of the countries, but in particular Mexico, that I don't think we can make a deal. So I think we'll end up probably terminating NAFTA at some point. Well, uh, that did not go over too well with a number of people, even in the audience last night, or the other night, of course, in Phoenix, including the Chamber of Commerce president. Uh, In uh, Canada and Mexico, officials are, uh, well, officially shrugging their shoulders and say no big deal. But is that how they really feel? And how will a comment like that affect the negotiations? Let's ask Ian Lee from the Sprout School of Business at Carleton University as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great, Bill. This Good. Is a very meaty subject. It isn't it though? Let's well, let me give you. Let, let's start off with your reaction, Ian, when sure. you heard what Trump said the other night. How how, how did that hit, sit with you? And, and what do you think the ramifications are? Right. Let me just correct one thing, and then I'll deal with what hit my analysis of of what Trump said. Um, when he said this is the worst deal possible, um, I've always skipped past that in our past conversations, but I want to confront this, okay, because I teach this stuff, and I've got the hard data, and this isn't theory, this isn't opinion, this is the study done at the 20-year anniversary of NAFTA by three countries, one's called Canada, one's called the United States, and one's called Mexico. Who did the study? The national statistical agencies with thousands of economists, thousands of trained, highly trained economists. And they crunched all the numbers from the three economies, the totality of the three economies. And what they were trying to find out was to come up with an elaborate analysis of all the data to find out what was the effect of NAFTA. And they allowed for job losses because trade agreements create job losses and job gains because it allows the better, stronger firms, the more efficient firms to specialize, and they kill the weaker firms. We know that. So they crunched this big study. And they found that over a 20-year period, 40 million net after job loss jobs were created. In other words, after you account for the job losses, NAFTA was responsible for the creation of 40 million. The lion's share of those jobs were in the United States. That's obvious. Why? Because the United States has over 300 million people. Mexico is the second largest beneficiary of NAFTA in raw numbers because they have over 100 million people. And Canada had the smallest but significant, still very significant number of jobs created because we have the smallest population. So it is absolute, factual, statistical, empirical nonsense what Donald Trump is saying, that it was the worst deal ever. I would turn him upside down because he's, he's standing on his head instead of on his feet. This was the best deal that the United States has ever negotiated in any trade agreement. So he's just flat out wrong. Now let's go to, the, to my analysis of it. Okay. I, I think that there were two separate things he was doing here. Two, two objectives, if you want to call it that. One is this was a, a partisan audience, by and large, in a, uh, a border state. Uh, and I know Mexico, excuse me, um, Arizona very well because my only sister lives there and has lived there for years and I've visited her many times. And uh, they're very sensitive about the whole relationship with Mexico because of illegal immigration and so forth. And so he gave a red meat speech to a, a hardcore uh, partisan Trump audience. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. All politicians do that. Every political party has a base. 
I mean, other political parties say, oh, no, we don't have a base. It's just the bad guys that have a base. Every party has a base. The NDP has a base. The Liberal Party has a base. Democratic Party. And politicians throw out red meat lines to the base that really mobilize and, and, and excite the supporters. And in this audience, the, the Trump supporters, they a lot of them don't like NAFTA. Not all of them, but a lot of them don't like it. So first and foremost, he was preaching to the crowd, preaching to the, uh, to the converted, if you will, preaching to the choir, his hardcore base, m- who mostly, mostly don't, don't like NAFTA. His second, uh, I think, mission or objective or purpose was to, because Donald Trump has an enormous ego, and he thinks he's this big wheeler-dealer guy, because he wrote a book called The Art of the Deal, claiming, well, he didn't write the book, but he claimed how great a wheeler-dealer he is. I think he's trying to, virtually speaking, inject himself into the negotiating room where the Canadian-American and uh, Mexican negotiators are negotiating. And he's doing that through the media, because he knows they read the newspapers. They're not in some kind of a lockup, like a jury trial or something. They have full access to all the media reporting and all the utterances by all the leaders, and so they see uh, Trump out there and listen to Trump, and I think he's basically trying to, A, intimidate the Canadian and Mexican administrators and buck up the American administrators so they, in case they're starting to waver or get a little bit wobbly, they don't say, oh, my God, look at what Donald Trump said last night, you know? So I think he's, got, he's crazy like a fox on this issue, but, uh, and I don't agree with him at all empirically on what he said about NAFTA, but I think his agenda is a, a build up the base, support the base, Tell the base he's there with them, supporting them, working for them. At the same time, try and intimidate the Canadians and the Americans, excuse me, Canadians and Mexicans, to maybe compromise a little bit more than they might otherwise would have because they hear Trump and Trump's trying to scare them, basically, bully them by saying, hey, we're, we might just rip up this deal, so go away. But with that in mind, it, I guess the overriding question here, does he even understand that, or is that is that Trump's reality? Does he think it's a bad deal, or is that just bluster? Because um, I, I get no, the no, sense no, sometimes, have... Ian, that he doesn't have a, a, a great understanding. He certainly doesn't have a very good understanding of international politics. I don't right, think he understands right. international trade either. Bill, I, I mean, I agree with you in this sense. I mean, I don't think he's a policy wonk. I don't think he says, I know he's not a policy wonk from everything he said. He says, I don't bother reading documents. I don't read, I'm not saying that's a crime. You know, we don't elect intellectuals to be president or prime minister, and that's probably a good thing, by the way. Uh, nothing wrong with having them around as advisors, but you don't have to always listen to their advice, you know. <laughs> and I'm talking about people like me. <laughs> but, uh, but, my, but my point is, is the, the fact that he's surrounded by so many, he, he travels with the business crowd, let's call it the CEO crowd. Well, most CEOs in the United States support free trade. It's the, it's, it's the rank and file in the Rust Belt states that are really, really angry because they've lost their jobs. But if you look at the, corporate, the U.S. Corporate Roundtable, it's an actual association in the states, or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, overwhelmingly supports free trade. So I cannot believe that he believes what he's saying, simply because I acknowledge he doesn't read it in the studies on NAFTA, but he talks to all these CEO buddies and friends and colleagues and acquaintances, and they're all telling him privately because they're big, strong people themselves in their own right, and they're not afraid to tell the president from private, you know, in private meetings, look, we're strongly supportive of NAFTA. It's good for us. So I think he's doing it really because he understood Mulroney's old adage, you dance with the woman that brung you to the party, to the dance. And who elected Donald Trump? The Rust Belt states. And what is the problem in the Rust Belt states? Well, they're madder than hell at NAFTA, and they think that the Canadians are cheating, and the Mexicans are cheating. They also think the Chinese and the Germans are cheating, by the way, but they're not in NAFTA. Well, they think that because Trump told them that. Well, <laughs> well I would say, I would, to be a little bit fair to Trump, I would say Trump 
really reinforced it. That idea was out there before Trump. That idea has been out there for probably 10, 15 years. You know, the Senator Sanders crowd in the Democratic Party, that has been, and even the trade unions in Canada and the States, have long been opposed to trade agreements. And the Democratic Party, remember, did vote against NAFTA. In 1993, uh, it was passed with the support. It only passed because of the support of the Republican congressmen and women. And and so my point being that I think he is, uh, yes, he doesn't read these files. He doesn't know the facts. I agree. But I actually think he understands deep down that what he's saying is nonsense. But he wants to be reelected and show everybody what a, an important guy and a big shot guy he is. But isn't he setting himself up for, uh, for failure in those same Rust Belt states, though? Because you listen to the rhetoric, and I'm sure that a lot of people that heard that the other night, Ian, are going to say, yeah, boy, he's got our back. He's going to bring those jobs yes, back. Yes. He's not. Uh, and and he probably I think if unless he's a lot dumber than I think he is, uh, he he knows that too. But he's yeah. he's feeding these people a line, and and it's not going to happen. And you know, come election time next year, they're going to remember the fact. Hey, you promised us jobs, we don't see them. Um, I I partially agree with you. I partially disagree with you. And the reason I partially disagree with you is politics is a lot about the optics. And what's Trump out there doing just about every day of the week, either tweeting or in speeches? I'm standing up for America first. I'm looking after America. I don't give a damn about those Canadians or those Germans or those Chinese. I'm looking out for you. And he says it over and over and over. And you look at the polls of his base, and there are, I'm talking re- polls like in this last week, and he is consistently, from the time of the election until now, he has held his base. Oh, sure. They, they, they eat this up. Oh, they did. They just believe. So my point is, as long as he's out there, and if he can come back with a NAFTA agreement with some, some highly visible deliverables. You know, for example, let's say he gets uh, the dairy market in Canada opened up, which is trivial to us because there's only 12,000 dairy farmers and we'll compensate them anyways. Well, he could go back and say in Wisconsin, which is one of the states that put him in the White House, I got those nasty Canadians to finally open up the Canadian dairy market. And it's, it's small, it's, it's symbolic, it's not, that won't have a huge economic consequence for either side, but he'll be able to claim victory. And he wants some victories that he can claim out of the campaign trail. And the fact, you're right, it's not going to bring back the jobs, because every study I've seen, serious study, not by politicians, not by political parties, by academics and think tanks and government agencies, is 80% of all the job losses in Canada and the United States in the last 20 years in manufacturing has been due to automation. Absolutely. We're automating like crazy. We're, there's more robots have been installed in, in the factories in the last 10 years than in, in ever. And, and so it's automation that's transforming our world and our economy. And, and so you're right. It won't bring it back. So he's been playing a game of optics to send out to the Rust Belt in Ohio. And, and specifically, let's name those states. And I've just driven through them. So, I mean, I know I've talked to people there. Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. Pennsylvania, especially in rural Pennsylvania and the smaller towns like Scranton um, or upstate New York, and they are feeling the pain big time. And they just love Donald Trump because they think he's standing up not only to the fat cats in Washington, but they think he's standing up to those nasty Mexicans and nasty Chinese and nasty Germans and nasty Canadians. But why doesn't that that kind of news actually uh, get to those people? I mean, they, they buy this rhetoric, and you're right, I mean, union leaders are telling them the same thing and have been yes, for yes. years as well, yes. that that damn NAFTA agreement is why that shop's closing or why you know, those, yes. those auto sector jobs are gone. And, they all, and, and of course, remember the Ross Perot's rhetoric back when NAFTA was 
being negotiated. They're out, they're all going down to Mexico. Yeah. Some of them did, but they're back now. They're, a lot of those places are in the southern states right now. They've closed up in Mexico, and they're back here. Nobody, I, nobody talks about that, Ian. Bill, you are absolutely right. And I, for, forgive me for a little bit of sort of bragging here, if I can. I'm finishing up a paper. Uh, a peer-reviewed paper, so we don't get paid for that. I mean, we get paid our salary, but we don't get paid commissions for writing papers. And, and I'm looking at the, the, the big-picture stats in the auto industry. Well, the idea that the United States has lost all these jobs in Mexico, the United States is still producing the same percentage of total North American, remember North America means the three countries, they are still producing the same percentage of vehicles as they were 20 or 30 years ago. What's happened is the mix has changed, so the big honking SUVs and trucks where the high profit margins are, are being produced in the States overwhelmingly, while the small, cheaper cars with smaller margins are going to Mexico where, yes, the wages are lower. And, but the second point is your point that you just brought up. The, the southern United States in the last 25 years has become the new Detroit. Mm -hmm. Sometime next year, it's forecast by serious people that have analyzed this with really good numbers, Center for Automotive Research at the University of Michigan, that the southern United States is going to surpass the Midwest, meaning Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, in the total number of vehicles manufactured in the U.S. In other words, Detroit is no longer going to be Detroit. <laughs> but you know but Detroit I mean. doesn't seem to get that. I've got friends and relatives down there, too, and we had that discussion this past summer. And, I, you know, they're, again, they're blaming NAFTA. And I said, your jobs, <laughs> they didn't go to Mexico. They're in Alabama. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I've got the data again showing the all-in cost in U.S. dollars, including wages, and that for the three regions. Southern, I leave out, left out Mexico because we know they're lower there. It's a third-world developing country. Southern United States all-in is around $43 an hour, all-in. That's wages and benefits in the automotive plants in the southern United States, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina. In the northern United States, and we're talking Detroit and Ohio and so forth, they're about $60 an hour, all-in. And in Canada, all-in, they're about $70 an hour, which is why the president of GM Canada and the president of Ford and Chrysler uh, have separately on the record said that Canada is the most expensive place in the world to make cars. And so this idea that all the jobs are going to Mexico is simply not true. The jobs are going, if anywhere, to the southern United States, where the land is cheaper. It's not just the wages, by the way, Bill. I've, I have a, a timeshare in South Carolina at Hilton Head. I go there every year. Everything is cheaper in the south. I mean everything. The food is cheaper. I'll give you a quick example for your listeners. I gas up in upstate New York. I did this April, and it was two seventy-five a gallon. U.S. dollars, U.S. gallon. Doesn't matter. I get to Hilton Head. And South Carolina, what am I paying? Two oh five a gallon, and that's common throughout the South. In other words, the land taxes are cheaper, the wages are cheaper, the cost of land is cheaper, cost of food is cheaper, cost of gasoline is cheaper, and the governments are very pro-business down there. Those, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, and so forth, very pro-business. Whereas you get to the state like Michigan and Ohio, they're a heavily unionized state. They're very demo uh, strongly Democratic states, Democratic Party-controlled states. And they're passing all kinds of rules and regulations um, that drive up the cost of doing business. And so what firms have been doing, all of them, not just the domestic firms, but also the foreign firms, the Toyotas and the Hondas and the German companies, they're all down in the U.S. South now, and they have become really the center of U.S. automobile manufacturing. And so this nonsense, they're all going to Mexico, is just simply not supported empirically because the U.S. still continues to produce about 70% uh, it's Sorry, 19% is Mexico, 9% is Canada. So, yeah, about 70% is built in the United States. 
And ladies and gentlemen, that is not fake news. Uh, That's not. <laughs> Ian, thanks so much for this. We've got to break it off at this point. Always a pleasure. Uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, same to you. Thanks. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sports School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We have uh, been talking with the Waterfront Trust for years now, and uh, it's been a rather controversial topic, frankly. And, uh, it, well, and those who have asked some questions about that at various times have been vilified by some city councilors from time to time, including members of the public. I remember having a discussion with Gary Santucci, of course, from the Pearl Company a couple of years ago, and he went before our city council and asking some questions about the the financial situation in the Waterfront Trust. And he was uh, uh, assaulted verbally by a number of councilors for that and vilified by a number of them, too, which I thought was disgusting behavior, frankly, by the elected officials uh, from a a council that really, I think, needs to answer some questions. Well, city councilors themselves now are starting to uh, to turn the microscope on the Waterfront Trust, and that's a good thing. Uh, this is all because of a motion that uh, Councilor Donna Skelly brought forward at the last meeting uh, a couple of days ago. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the motion, what they're trying to get out of this, and hopefully some results from this, too. Good morning, Donna. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. You know uh, from your, your media days, of course, long before you were elected to council, that this has been an area of concern. Why bring the motion forward now? Is there, is there something new here? Is there something that you're looking for? I think that something, I wouldn't say new. I think a lot of people have been looking for uh, accountability from the Waterfront Trust for a number of years, and they just don't feel comfortable with the information or lack of information that has been presented. This is actually, my motion came on the heels of a request by um, the Waterfront Trust to have a a reconfiguration, a change to its board of directors, as well as um, oversight over the new um, development along the waterfront. And that really is the, the thing that, that piqued my interest. And I thought there are too many unanswered questions and there's too much controversy surrounding the waterfront trust to simply rubber stamp the approval of uh, uh, expansion of its, of its authority and its oversight and to allow it to take on what will be the largest development of the waterfront in the, in the city's history. Well, you know as well as I do that there are some people in this community that are, are asking one of those basic, basic questions, is that, are these people even qualified to do this? I mean, simply because they are called the Waterfront Trust, I mean, what gives them the credibility to be a partner in this major enterprise? I agree, and I ask that. What expertise are they bringing to the table to oversee this project? It is a massive undertaking and it will have a huge impact on the future of this city. It will be, uh, once we redevelop the waterfront, it will probably become our image. I mean, let's face it, any city that um, is, is fortunate enough to exist alongside a shoreline really has to maximize the potential in its in its um, uh, economic future, in its branding, and do we want to allow a group of people, and I don't know what their background is, I mean, I have a a very basic understanding, but what is it that they are bringing to the table that is unique, that is so unique, that we would simply allow them to oversee the future of our waterfront, and why is it uh, why are we not allowing our staff to do that? If our staff is incapable, then we have another problem that we have to look at. But why is it so important to simply hand this over to the Waterfront Trust? A trust that, let's face it, has a history of not being transparent and of, of, of being shrouded in, in secrecy. 
couple of questions about that aspect of it, and 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 I guess maybe one of them is a very elementary question. Uh, and again, this predates your time on council, but but you know you're you're lifting up some rocks right now that a number of councils just didn't seem to want to do before. Why does the waterfront trust even exist? We we know why it was initially started because they they got a lot of money from the federal government as part of the settlement in that lawsuit. We get that, and and the trust was supposed to oversee how that money was going to be spent. Well, the money's long gone, Donna, as you know, and now they come cap in hand to city council every year and say, give us money. So why does the trust even have to be there? Why isn't city staff just doing the work down there? Exactly. A question I raised at, at this last council meeting, and it raised the ire of some councillors who will argue that they can do a better job and they um, raise the issue of uh, the Hamilton SPCA and, and the fiasco around bringing it in-house and, and uh, or humane um, animal services bringing it in-house or, or leaving it as an independent. I don't think that that's a good enough argument. I'd like to see the statistics as to why. You know what, because you know what, think of the ramifications of that. And it was the city councilor, one of the ones who sits on the trust that that made that that statement. First of all, that's a slap on the face to city staff. In other Mm -hmm. words, these guys can do a better job and a more cost-effective job than you. Prove it. When you're going to make an assertion like that, prove it. Because and, and I'm looking at their record right now, and they always point to, well, look at Williams Coffee Pub. Well, we're not in the coffee house business. We're supposed to be in, in massive development down there. They haven't done a very good job of attracting businesses down there. And, and you know, now we're going to give them a much grander project to look after? I, I'm a little skeptical. I'd actually like to explore Williams Coffee Pub because I don't think that, yes, it's a wonderful facility, but I'm not so sure it's, it's reached its potential. Um, if you look at this, uh, the history of the, of that particular eating establishment. For the longest time, it was the only building or the only facility along the waterfront where a person could get something to drink or something to eat. And yet it was just recently it broke even. How is that possible? I had a conversation recently with um, a restaurant owner who is not interested. This is not a personal interest. He's just upset that he has people coming into his establishment that are so frustrated with what's going on down at the waterfront that they end up eating at his establishment. He doesn't want the facility, but he's saying, these people have never run a restaurant before, and it should be making an awful lot of money. It, it has a monopoly over, uh, over that type of a business on the waterfront. We shouldn't be breaking even. We should be making good money, and if we're not, why not? Well, and if we're going to talk about them, let's talk about the other establishment down there, Sarcoa. And, and that whole deal has, has the, the, the smell right now of, of bad fish. I mean, what went on there? What promises did the Waterfront Trust make? What kind of a deal did they cut with the owners of Sarcoa? What kind of promises did they make about what they could and couldn't do? Because that's a very contentious issue. Now, that's, that's the topic of a big lawsuit right now. But you and I both know, Donna, that if, if Sarcoa is successful in, in defending their position on that, that's going to cost the taxpayers of this city an awful lot of money. Or should it? If this is, if the Waterfront Trust is a standalone arm's length organization, who's paying the legal bills? Are we paying the legal bills? And if the city's paying the legal bills, then why aren't we running the... Well, Waterfront Trust doesn't have their own legal department, so you got to know the answer to that, don't you? Exactly. Well, they've hired an outside firm, but who's paying for it? And they don't have money. Well, you are, because you are as a city council, because they get their money from you. Exactly. Well, was it approved? There's another issue. They had no money. So how is it that they're paying? Who's paying those bills? And where did they get the money? And who authorized it? 
And how often was money authorized? These are questions we don't know the answers to because the statements are so questionable. I mean, I know... Well, you, Donna, you used to report about this when you were still yes. over at CH, and, and, and yes. you've talked about this, and I've been talking about this on the program for years as well. And and I'm not... I got nothing personal against these people. Some of them, of course, are former city staffers. I know them. They're nice people, and, and they were pretty capable of their jobs, but they left the city for a variety of reasons. So if this is not personal, but you set standards for city departments and for agencies and say, this is how you're supposed to do business. This is how you're supposed to award contracts. This is how you're supposed to spend money. Yet city council for years now really just turns their back on the Waterfront Trust and says, go do what you want. And they get a free pass every time they come to council. And then they come before council once a year for their report. And it's like a love-in. Oh, you guys are great. Hey, I love the fishing derbies. Well, that's that's not what we're looking for here from the city. And, and yet city council just seems to, to fall all over these guys. I, I'm glad that you and, and Councillor Whitehead are bringing this motion forward because I think they must be under the same level of scrutiny and follow the same rules as everybody else. I agree. And it, it, by the way, the seconder of the motion was Councillor Brenda Johnson. Which My mistake, sorry. No, no, not, no, not a mistake, but because Councillor Whitehead did uh, raise a number of issues. But the reason I'm bringing her name in is I think you're starting to see people saying, wait a minute. You know, we haven't really seen a lot of, uh, haven't had a lot of uh, questions answered in there, you know, and, and, and it's not to accuse anybody of anything, but let's just be transparent. If there is this much uncertainty with anything, and if there's nothing to hide, if it's a well-oiled machine, then let's see it. And, and the, the questions and this this air of uncertainty will go away. We're just asking for transparency. The financial statement has not yet been uh, produced for last year. I'd like to see it. I mean, we know the, the history with losing the charitable status, although it wasn't lost, it was annulled. I mean, it's, it's all semantics, but regardless, it wasn't uh, council weren't made aware of it. Well, we got to get into the bottom line here about what's going on with Canada Revenue, too. I mean, this is the second run-in they've had with Canada Revenue. Yes, and taxes uh, to the city unpaid. And, uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. And I think, again, the point is, with this many issues within one organization, why would you entrust the trust with the largest development along our waterfront without asking some questions and and demanding some answers? Listen, I I have no problem at all with partnerships and arm's length and outside agencies. I get that. But there's got to be some pretty strict guidelines as to how that's going to work. And and the, the thing that I'm concerned about here is, like you say, we're dumping money into it right now. It is, for all intents and purposes, it's a city department, just with a different mm-hmm. name, because you, you fund it every year. And yeah, there's a. It, it reminds me very much of the Heckby situation, where city council finally said, "Look, this is just out of hand. Uh, we're taking this thing back." And uh, now you've hired an outside agency to run it, and I think they're doing an outstanding job running those facilities and managing those facilities for you. But I, I see that ultimately, maybe that's what city council is going to have to think about with the waterfront now as this comes forward. Is this has to be done by the city, and and overseen by the city because it's being funded by the city. I think the first thing that we need to do is, is, is a real, we have to look at, perhaps it's a forensic audit, but we need to look at the books and, and you know, just follow the money and uh, see if everything, all of the um, I's have been dotted and the T's crossed to ensure that there is accountability and we know who's, who's getting what and why and uh, what, is, what, what are the plans. But more so, more than that, I, I really do 
I really I have grave concerns about allowing the trust to take on more responsibility. In fact, I think it's time to wind it down, but I'm I'm willing to wait until we have all of the books produced and we can sit down and really discuss um, all of these these uh, questions that have been raised. And they've been raised by people who have asked me, and they're reaching out to me. They're not they're not wanting to speak to another counselor. They're simply sharing concerns with me in hopes that I will raise them. Uh, a lot of people do feel uncomfortable with what has happened. And again, I, I keep using the word transparency, but that seems to be the common theme with the concerns raised by people within the city and um, outside the city. My constituents and constituents right across the city have raised the fact that they don't seem to understand um, who's running the show. You know, what about the books? Why isn't it making money? Why is there such a, a this veil of secrecy? And maybe we are, you know, embellishing things that don't exist. Maybe we're creating this this um, air of uncertainty that really, and everything is up, uh, above board, and and you know things are running smoothly. But let's just let's just take a, um, you know, really look at it and see if that is the case. And if not, you know, then we have to again discuss the future of the trust. Well, and and maybe the role the trust has to play, if it, any role at all. Uh, and like I say, the ones that I know that that work on that trust, the individuals I know there, uh, they they did some pretty good design. They worked in Parks and Rec, and they worked in Public Works, and uh, they did some great work for the city at that time. And uh, they always point to the trail, but I know the trail got funded because we got a big whack of money, and yeah, they did a great job on that. But what I think the next level here, Donna, that the council has to determine now, is this is a business enterprise now. This isn't just about building a trail. This is about partnering with business. And this we're talking multi-million dollar investments here with a lot of big shooters and people that want to invest money here. And I don't know that they have the expertise in the Waterfront Trust to be able to do that sort of thing. That's When I saw this, uh, when I had Chris Phillips on a few months ago talking about the new plans for Pier 7 and 8, and he was talking glowingly about how the Waterfront Trust were partnering. And I, I just scratched my head and said, why are they there? I, I don't get that. It, I don't see that there's a role for them here. Uh, in, in a business enterprise like that. And I think that's one of the questions that needs to be answered. I think one of the things that we need is to understand, what, when we when we move forward with the development of the waterfront, the city has to have access, immediate access, to everything that's going on. We need to really follow how much money is being spent. Um, and trust me, the longer I'm on council, the more I realize that there are things that can be done more cost-effectively. And it doesn't mean we're getting an inferior product. It just means that we're watching our money. And I think that we need to have absolute control over that waterfront. It's imperative that we can get answers immediately because this is going to be a massive undertaking with millions and millions and millions of dollars at stake and really the future of the city. So I don't think we should leave it to someone else, especially another organization with this uh, this many um, questions that have gone unanswered, and and I think it's time that we brought it back so that we can really steer the ship as we move forward. It's imperative that we have access to everything that's going on, and that's not what's happening with the Waterfront Trust. Well, I'll go back to the HECFI example because I think that it's it's very instructive uh, because of Council's decision at that time, first of all, to take the the, the ownership of those things back in-house and the management. Well, when you decided to fire, hire a private sector company to do that, 
you went and found somebody who's got a track record of it, that they've been doing it in facilities all over North America, and they show a profit. And uh, Uh you can see how it's benefited the city as a result of that partnership. Now compare that or contrast that with the Waterfront Trust. Uh, Their business enterprises don't do well. As a matter of fact, they're losing money. For the most part, and so so that's really who you want, and and I I, I really question whether or not this the, the there's a viable entity here that that's really going to help move the city forward. Uh, great job on the waterfront trail, guys. But now you know phase two and phase three of this thing is going to cause uh, it, well, it's going to fail if you don't have some great business acumen here, and I'm not so sure that the waterfront trust has that. I agree. I think you took the words right out of my mouth, and and you I are really um, speaking for a number of people who've raised those very, very concerns. And it's, it's you know, there's always a best before date for everything and sometimes everyone. And this might just simply be the time to wrap it up. And as we move to the next stage, we bring in a different uh, group with different uh, areas of expertise to oversee the project. I don't feel comfortable until we, we, we look very deeply into um, the history of the Waterfront Trust saying, let's just give this organization the authority to manage moving forward. It is simply too large a project, and it will require a different, I think, a different area of expertise. I, I understand that these people have done a good job, perhaps, uh, so far, but as many people have pointed out, um, is this the type of organization that you want uh, overseeing this next stage of our, our development of our waterfront? And I'm not so sure it is. And if, in fact, that statement holds true, what one of the members mentioned, that they think the Waterfront Trust can do things better than city staff and more economically, uh, I, 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 need that, I need that explained. I need that explained uh, to me. We have a big problem then. We have a big problem. If, if that is indeed the case, then it's time to start looking at every department, which I'm doing. And, and uh, I've, I've mentioned this to you many, many times, and I keep harping on this issue with, um, and I've raised it in your show, and I apologize for repeating, but the splash pads, and, and Bill, I'm telling you, we, we are, I believe we are overpaying for, uh, for some projects in the city, and it's time that we really started looking at a more um, aggressive, competitive um, structure to ensure that we're getting value for dollar. But that's another project. The point is, however, there may be some truth to that, to that statement, but then if that is the case, what are you doing about it? Well, sure. Right. And, and well, I'm just thinking of past examples. I mean, and you covered the story, I think, in, you, yourself when you were still at CH, about the washroom they built down there that was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then they came back to council and they said, well, no, it was really just a bookkeeping thing. We put that money. We're not supposed to do that. You know, no. so, I mean, if, if these guys have more business smarts than, than city staff do and they can do things better, they're doing a pretty good job of hiding it so far. And and I just don't see that all of a sudden this is going to flourish. Anyway, we're just about out of time. Uh, when, do, when does the motion come forward? When do you guys vote on this? And when do you want to talk to these guys? I'd like to talk to them immediately. I've asked for the financial statements and was told that they are available. I'd like to sit down with the Waterfront Trust uh, offline and just go over everything and, and sit down with, with people who are far more qualified than I Uh accountants, et cetera, to review these, these documents. And I'm still waiting on this uh, 16 to, to come forward. So once that is presented, uh, it, hopefully this will come to council. Donna, thanks so much for the time. We'll stay in touch as this develops. Appreciate this. No problem. Donna Skelly, of course, is the, uh, the counselor for Ward 7. And uh, we'll see what happens at the next council meeting. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
The uh, ETFO, uh, that's the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, wants to see the name of our first prime minister scratched off of all schools because of his political history. Uh, that's, of course, in light of what happened with the Robert E. Lee and the statues and, and everything that's been going on down in the States in the last little while. Joining us to talk about this is our good friend Steve Pakin, of course, host of The Agenda on TVO, which I guess will be starting a new season pretty soon, but uh, always a welcome guest on the program. How are you this morning, Steve? Uh, all the better for being with you. Thanks, Bill. Nice, nice of you to call this morning. You're, uh, you're back from your uh, sojourn up uh, to the North Carolina, as you do every summer? Uh, I love to go to paradise in the summer, yes. It's called Manitoulin Island, and it's uh, only eight hours' drive north of Toronto, but well worth it once you get there. Well, yeah, the pictures you put up on Facebook, I know. No wonder you drive up there all the time. Listen, you, you're a fan of, of, of this man. Uh, you're, a, you're a history buff. You're a political buff. Uh, you're one of the uh, the Canadians that uh, that fet John A. of course on his birthday every year. Uh, we talk about this. Give me your sense on on this story and and where they're coming from on this. Well, it's certainly a sign of the times, isn't it? Um, every now and then we like to think that we're very different from what's going on in the United States, and of course they're embroiled in a huge debate right now about, as you point out, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Donald Trump actually asked uh, in one of his speeches the other day a question uh, about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, given the fact that they were also slave owners. Uh, Thomas Jefferson actually fathered children with one of his slaves, mm-hmm. Kelly Hammings. And the question uh, he was asking was, uh, you know, do we start to take the name Washington off of uh, cities? Do we start to, uh, you know, rename the Washington Monument? Do we take Washington and Jefferson's faces off of Mount Rushmore? Th- this is really a great, great debate. And if we thought we were immune to it in Canada, um, the Elementary Teachers Federation has reminded us that we're not because uh, they, I guess, overwhelmingly passed a resolution saying that Sir John A's name ought to be taken off buildings. Um, I guess I'd make the the following couple of observations, Bill. Number one, uh, there is a temptation to experience what uh, Richard Gwynn, who wrote that two-volume set about Sir John A., wrote. Um, He describes it as presentism, and by that it is... Judging by today's standards, or the standards of the present, uh, what transpired uh, in McDonald's case, we're talking 150 or 200 years ago, and how, in Gwynn's view, you just can't do that. Uh, you, can't, you cannot have expected people 150 or 200 years ago to be as uh, progressive or sensitive or thoughtful or empathetic on issues uh, back then that we clearly are today. That's one thing. But then the second is, okay, if that's the case, uh, what do you do? Uh, we certainly wouldn't want to allow statues of Adolf Hitler to be put up. I don't think anybody's making the connection between Hitler and McDonald. But where do you draw the line between what was clearly unacceptable behavior back then, which it doesn't matter what era you did it in, it, it doesn't work, and I think the Holocaust would qualify for that. And where do you say, you know what, we recognize that they were different back then, but the achievements are so terrific, namely in this case the creation of Canada, uh, that we're not going to do anything about it. This is the debate, and, you know, obviously people are going to be on both sides of it, and uh, I'm thinking long and hard about myself. Um, uh, have you come to a conclusion about what side of it you're on? Because I'm not sure I have yet. No, no, I'm in the same boat as you, and because I see the validity and the concern raised by the ETFO here, that certainly, and, and by the way, some some uh, First Nations groups, Aboriginal groups that, are, that share the concern. And the history is the history. I mean, you're absolutely right, Steve. I, I mean, what they're citing here, of course, they, you know, with the good news is well, you've got a, a national railroad. The bad news is the way they did it was terrible. 
Uh, and it yeah. was, and it was, and it caused the death of, of of a number of different people all along the route, and and that has to be taken into consideration. But you know, Steve, you've written books upon books about political figures, past and present, and and I think it's pretty fair to say, as a general overview, not too many of them qualify for sainthood. I mean, there's there's black marks and skeletons in just about everybody's closet. Well, that is the case, and that then raises the issue of if you want to take Sir John A's name off everything, I mean, is that the thin edge of the wedge? There's obviously in um, uh, in uh, the park downtown, in uh, Gore Park, there's that beautiful statue of Sir Johnny MacDonald. Is it time to pull that down? Because he did have some views about indigenous people that, uh, by today's standards, would clearly not hold up. You know, this is a wonderful question about balance. We got a country because of Sir John A. We got a railway because of Sir John A. He's clearly, electorally speaking, one of the most uh, successful politicians of all time in our country. Uh, he advocated, actually, he was the first significant politician in Canada to advocate for the vote for women. Um, we should keep that in mind when we think about pulling statues down and taking names off, off schools. Uh, but then again, thin edge of the witch. Where do you want to stop? There was a liberal prime minister who came after Sir John A. named Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, his name's on a university. Uh, his name's on streets all over the place. There are statues of Wilfrid Laurier. There's a hotel in Ottawa named after him. Um, you know, he, he's the guy who, who decided to impose a head tax uh, on Chinese uh, to bring them into the country and, um, and increased it significantly, uh, which, you know, if you uh, want to judge that by the standards of today, certainly doesn't hold up. Uh, you can imagine that uh, 100 years ago uh, that there were uh, significant politicians in this country who probably held very, uh, some quietly, some not so quietly, uh, some pretty repugnant uh, anti-Semitic views. Uh, as uh, World War II was about to uh, get underway, there were uh, no, there was certainly a, a reality of the times in most Western countries that uh, that uh, political leaders held anti-Semitic views. Um, you know, what, do we want to take uh, do we want to take people off the money? Do we want to pull statues down? Do we want to take their names off because of that? Uh, Sir Winston Churchill had some pretty uh, appalling things to say about uh, people in uh, today's South Asia. Uh, you know. You want to start taking his statues down. You want to start taking his names off schools. I don't know where this ends. I think the I weigh in with this on on what's happening south of the border. I think you can make a legitimate argument that while we don't want to airbrush history and we don't want to rewrite history, there's a difference between Washington and Jefferson and their views and their owning slaves. There's a difference between them and those in the south like Robert E. Lee, like Jefferson Davis, the first president of the Confederate States of America, like Stonewall Jackson, the general, these men were traitors. These men actually caused a civil war. Uh, these men, you know, forced brother to fight against brother. And you could make the argument that that's different from simply having repugnant views by today's standards. Treason is treason regardless of when it happens, and that's the argument for taking those statues out of public squares and putting them into a museum with plaques, with literature that can better contextualize their role in history. That makes some sense to me. I don't know how we do that up here. I don't know who'd qualify for that and who wouldn't, but 
to me, that that makes some sense. Well, and again, it comes down to perspective, and and it's a point that I think gets lost in the debate, and that and that's not to diminish the concerns of of John A. McDonald's track record or Laurier's or or those others, but but your point I think is is well taken here. I mean, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis were traitors. I mean, in any other time or place, they they probably would have been in jail if not executed for what they did. Right. Uh, they fought to maintain slavery. I mean, and and, and that's totally different from what Jefferson. That doesn't mean what Jefferson did made it right. But these are people that actually fought a war and said that our economy depends on the fact that we need to use slave labor, and and they, they started a war about that. It's it's much different, and that that element of of that the discussion, that debate, Steve, very rarely seeped into the discussion about what was going on in the states. Yes, and and I don't want to sound too you know smug or sanctimonious about this, but but we are fortunate to have had our ancestors settle the northern half of North America, where. Um, you know, we we just in Toronto had a day named after him uh, earlier this month, Simcoe Day. You know, our lieutenant governor of the day, we're going back to the late 1790s now, uh, John Graves Simcoe uh, passed the first anti-slavery laws in the British uh, Empire. And as a result, we have thankfully not have the appalling, uh, we have not had the appalling history with slavery that they've had in the Deep South in the United States. And therefore, uh, you know, we didn't have to deal uh, in our history with uh, with this issue in the way that they had to. Uh, and so that issue is not going to come up for us in the same way. Um, this is a great debate. I don't know where the solution is here. I don't know whether you grandfather the people whose names are on buildings. I don't think you can run around Canada right now. I, susp- I suspect it's impossible to take Sir John A.'s name off everything. Uh, I think. I mean, there's an airport in Ottawa with his name on it, for goodness sakes. Uh, the 401 Highway, which everyone calls a 401, is actually called the McDonald Carchet Freeway. I mean, that's what, when it was built 60 years ago, that's what it was actually called. Um, I don't know that you can take Sir John A.'s name off everything. I don't know that you can take Wilfrid Laurier's name off everything. Um, I, you, you probably could make a decision uh, that going forward, you know, you're not going to name anything new after these guys, and, uh, you know, as a, as a means of moving towards reconciliation with indigenous peoples. I do note that the Prime Minister of Canada uh, a few months ago decided to take Hector Langevin's name off the block in Ottawa where the Prime Minister's office is because the explanation was, uh, you know, he was one of the architects of the residential school situation, and as a result, uh, as a step towards reconciliation, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is having uh, Langevin's name taken off the block where it has been for low these many decades, and instead he's simply calling this uh, block the Prime Minister's office now. Uh, you know, uh, this is such a tough one. This is such a tough one. It, it, we, we have we have two coincidental goals here that we want to honor. We want to honor the people who were responsible for creating the country, faults and all. We also want to try to take steps towards reconciliation with people who have been mistreated for hundreds of years in this country. And how do we do both of those things at the same time and honor both of those missions? That one is going to have to be resolved by smarter people than me. I don't know. Well, the key I think we'd have to have a discussion about is education. And and I think that may be one of the maybe unstated goals of, of the people that are bringing motions like this forward is so that we Canadians have a better understanding of, of the foibles and, and the good, the bad, and the ugly of our political leaders and, and, and those that, that are historically significant. Uh, and I don't know that we do as, as good a job of teaching that. I mean, 
you know, we, we can't have a discussion about John A. McDonald without nation building, uh, you know, ramifications and, of course, the railroad. But you've also got to include what happened during the discussion about what happened during the construction of the railroad. You have to start talking about Louis Riel. There's an awful lot more that we kind of know passively about our Canadian history. But I think a lot of these groups are saying, wait a second, I think we need to dig a little deeper here. This is worth more than just a paragraph in some history book, that, that we need to talk to people about exactly how this happened. Well, indeed. And again, on that thin edge of the wedge uh, um, argument, uh, how far do you want to go? Uh, I know, for example, my wife's grandfather, uh, who was born in Italy and moved over here and then lived in Sudbury, Ontario, uh, one day during World War II, got a knock on the door and was um, taken off to an internment camp, because that's what happened to many Italian Canadians in this country. Uh, because of the edict of the William Lyon Mackenzie King government of the day. And, of course, the legacy of Japanese Canadians is another example. Uh, you know, numerous Japanese Canadians uh, mm-hmm. taken against their will, uh, particularly in British Columbia, uh, because, of course, Canada at the time was uh, in World War II against the Japanese Empire and against uh, Benito Mussolini and fascist Italy. Um, you know, Mackenzie King's on the $50 bill. He's our longest-serving prime minister. Uh, do we want to take him off the 50 because of a decision made 70 years ago in the height of war, which, of course, uh, through today's lens, would never be able to stand up to scrutiny? Um, boy, oh boy, it, it is such a thorny, thorny issue. And uh, I don't know where it ends, Bill. I just don't. Well, it started the discussion and started the debate, and I guess that may be the silver lining in this. And and I share your your frustration. I I don't think there's a hard and fast answer to say, okay, fine, we're going to do this. Uh, John A. McDonald is expunged from history. You can't do that either. But at the same time, I think we have to be a little more candid about exactly what the place is and, and, and the sorts of things that went on. Uh, and and that's that's maybe not the goal that these people are shooting for right now, but I think it's and it's not even meeting them halfway, but I think it's it's going in the right direction. Well, if that happens, that's all of the good, because as you and I both know, because we love history and we love talking about it, uh, one of the things we're not particularly good at in this country is understanding our history and and really, um, you know, we don't want to airbrush our history. We we don't want to have this glorification of the way people were 150 years ago. Of course, there, we have flawed leaders today. We had flawed leaders 150 years ago. So if, if this resolution by the elementary teachers has... If it's done anything, it certainly kick-started a broader discussion north of the border. They're already having it in the south, but north of the border on what our interests, responsibilities, obligations uh, might be as it relates to how we want to deal with our history, warts and all. And I guess to that extent, I don't know one way or another what we got to do about it, but to the extent that we want to have a discussion about it and therefore better understand our history, uh, you know, I guess that's all of the good. Well, and governments and elected officials of today, I think, have to acknowledge that, too. And, and I mean, Stephen Harper even did that. So how many years ago was that, Steve? Eight or ten years ago. And he had to make a public apology about past governments and how they treated uh, the, the, the internment camps, etc. And, and that stuff has to be acknowledged because that's part of our history as well. Indeed, and he also made the residential schools apologies. Exactly, so, you know, Prime Minister Harper. Uh, Prime Minister Harper, for you know, clearly, uh, many people uh, had issues with many things that he did. But he was a student of history, and he cared about history. And interesting, while he made those apologies that you just referred to, he also renamed um, a highway and a building in Ottawa after Sir Johnny Macdonald. Uh, so there we go. <laughs> I don't know that we've solved anything, but uh, at least it's out there. Uh, very quickly, because I know you got to run too. Uh, when's the agenda back on? Day after Labor Day, and uh, we are hoping, we're in the process right now of putting together our first program for the day after Labor Day, which 
Uh, we should have Premier Wynne dropping by for a conversation about how things have been going uh, for her uh, over the last year. And uh, the new leader of the Federal Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, we're trying to get him on as well. So that should be uh, day one of season 12 of the agenda on TVO Tuesday after Labor Day. And they said it wouldn't last. No, they never did. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. We've got... They did. But I'll see you, of course, uh, the day before that, uh, Labor Day Monday. Tim Morton Field. Timmy Ho's Field, because, uh, yes, indeed, Labor Day Classic, driving all the way back from Manitoulin Island for that, and wouldn't miss it. Well, first win of the season for the Cats, as it's going to turn out. Listen, you know I've gone through a whole session here. We haven't even mentioned the Boston Red Sox. Oh, gee, I just did. Uh, (laughs) First place. Anyway, Tag Case, Steve, we'll see you again. You got it. Steve Pagan, of course, host of the Agenda on TVO. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.